Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Near the end of the Book of Concord, the Lutheran Confessions, the book that really says what a Lutheran is and isn't, there is this catalog of testimonies. It is more or less a listing of theses with scripture verses and citations from the Church Fathers on the two natures in Christ. It's such an important subject that it warrants really an appendix of its own in the Lutheran Confessions that we rightly understand and confess who Jesus is, so that we know who he is and how he has saved us. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc., live on this Monday afternoon, November the 21st. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to conclude our series on the Catalog of Testimonies in the Lutheran Confessions with Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. And then we are going to reboot our Looking Forward to Sunday Morning according to the three-year lectionary series with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He's author of the books Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands, and he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, welcome back. Hey, thank you, Todd. We have a, a kind of a long ways to go and a short time to get there, but I want to jump right in. We're at point seven. It's a very brief thesis, mm-hmm. the communication of divine majesty occurs also in glory without mingling annihilation or denial of the human nature. Just before we get into those passages in the citations of the fathers, when they say in glory, what are they talking about? Well, they're talking in this state of exaltation. So in other words, after Christ has been raised from the dead and ascended, there was this notion that some people had, well, that means that his humanity has kind of like been absorbed into the deity. It doesn't remain anymore. And their answer is, you know, no, no, the humanity is still very much there. But because of the personal union, it now exercises this divine majesty in its state of glory. And, and they have the scripture passage they try to show to back that up. So where do they go in scripture? Well, just to two places briefly. First of all, Matthew 16, verse 27, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. The point there being, it's the son of man who comes again, the one with the body that was born of the Virgin Mary. And similarly, in Acts 1, 11, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So both passages stress that at his return, It's his very own body and blood that will be showing up. His return will show that he never laid off his flesh in heaven, but he retained it and he proceeded to glorify it. And then there's only a few passages from the early fathers to demonstrate this, but it's significant that these are um, some uh, very uh, solid early fathers on this. Where do they go first? First, Athanasius. He writes, according to his good pleasure, He made the humanity perfect above its own nature 
and did not prevent it from being a rational living being, a creature, a true human nature. So uh, Athanasius, the great opponent of Arius in in the third, fourth, fourth century, rather, uh, 300s, he basically cites then, look, Christ has a real human nature, and the divinity is able to take that human nature and impart glory to it without destroying that nature. Then we move to uh, Theophylact. He quotes Chrysostom from the early 4th and 5th centuries. He says, he's speaking in the person of Christ here, I previously, the condemned nature, being God, according to the unconfused union with the Son of God, have received power over all things. So, it's the human nature, which was previously condemned in Adam, now being saved in Christ, that has all power and authority in heaven and earth. As we've said repeatedly, the eternal nature in Christ always had that. The, the, you know, the divine nature, the eternal son, he couldn't be given anything because he had everything from the start. But the human nature receives this. And then on to Cyril of Alexandria, 5th century father. We have two quotes from him. He has shown that his entire body is full of the life-giving energy of the spirit, not because it has lost the nature of flesh and been turned into spirit, but because it is united with the spirit, it has acquired the entire power to make alive. So again, he wants to be really clear. It's not like Christ's nature is dissolved. His human nature is dissolved into his divinity. Rather, the divinity imparts to the humanity this great power to be life-giving. And similarly, he turns here to the same image that we saw first from St. Basil. By way of illustration, think of how fire adheres to a burning coal of wood. So also God, the word united to humanity, has transformed the received nature into its glory and efficacy. God has been united to humanity in a way that we cannot fully understand, but has conferred on it even the operation of his divine nature, so that humanity is actually doing divine things. Why is it important that they say, in a way that we do not fully understand? We can say certain tr very true things about it, but we have to admit that we kind of bow, at some point you just bow the knee and say, this is what scripture declares. Absolutely. As you're reading through this entire section, you're going to notice this sort of humility that rings through the fathers on this. They can be very clear and certain about what they can confess, but they're also clear that these are kind of like fences and boundaries by which we know the truth is inside of them, but we do not know how it actually works. How is it is a question that they never bother to answer beyond saying it comes about through the personal union. To me, it's similar to the incarnation of Christ as when people try and kind of think of it as a medical event. Oh, we are not told how it is that the human nature that is taken in the womb of the Virgin Mary is medically united to whatever the divine nature there. We don't have the embryology on that. No, I mean, it would be fascinating to go. So where did that Y chromosome come from? I mean, that's a fascinating question, but the only answer that scripture gives is the Holy spirit will do this. And before that answer, we have to bow in silence. What's next there? Okay. Then we turn to John of Damascus. He writes in book three. So remember, he died about uh, 750, the last of the great systematizers of orthodoxy. The Lord's flesh was enriched with divine operations because of its complete personal union with the word. But in no way did it experience any loss of those things that belong naturally to it. The human nature does not cease to be a human nature, even when 
that has these divine prerogatives given to it and being exercised through it. It's still very much a human nature. The same uh, author goes on. He writes, Although the Lord's soul by nature did not know the future, nevertheless, because it was personally united to God the Word, it had knowledge of all things, not by grace, but because of personal unions. I mean, this is always bumps up against that phrase that Jesus says, the Father knows, but the Son does not know. The angels do not know. Nobody knows when the, the time of the Son of Man will appear. We have to interpret that as, that is, he's confessing. He does not know that according to his humanity in and of itself. He doesn't have that ability. But it's certainly also true, as St. Peter says on the day of the resurrection, Lord, you know all things. So he is not exercising as both God and man what would his omniscience regarding that particular event. Right. For the, as the, the fathers have a little phrase they use for this, they say, for the sake of the economy. And, and they don't mean uh, buying and selling. They mean for the sake of the order of salvation, the way God planned our salvation, God purposefully limits himself. This is part of what Ephesians 2 is talking about when it talks about Christ emptying himself. He simply doesn't always use the divine prerogatives that are his all the time. He lets them lie latent inside of him. One more quote from John of Damascus. Since the natures in Christ are distinct, the natural wills, that is the powers of the will, are also distinct. I think we've seen as we worked our way through here, you have to, if you're a biblical teacher, you have to be a person who confesses that there are two wills in Christ, not one, because will properly does not belong to a person. It belongs to a nature. So Christ has two wills. In the eighth point, according to its own nature and because of the personal union, the human nature is a participant in and capable of the divine majesty that belongs to God. What is that about? Yeah, do you remember that the saying that the Calvinists came up with that the finite is not capable of the infinite? Well, this is its reversal that Lutherans love to cite. Yeah, but you know what? The infinite is capable of the finite. And so they point again to the personal union and say, look, the human nature, because of the personal union, is capable of the divine majesty and power that belongs to God. The scripture passage, how many times have we seen them turn to this? It's one of the most important ones in the entire New Testament. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, Colossians 2.9. And similarly, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, verse 3. And by way of church fathers, they begin with Justin. Yeah, which goes way far back, right? Kind of interesting that on this section, they began with two of the oldest of the fathers. So Justin, we think he died about 155, 150, somewhere in there. He writes, Christ is not in others as he is in the Father, not because he is not in them, but because they are not capable of receiving the divine as he has. In other words, they are not, Christ does not dwell in us in the same way that the divine is nature dwells in the human body because it's its own body. It's taken that body to itself. That's why we would say in the case of the believer, that indwelling is the mystical union. Right. And in the case of Christ, 
It is the what? How, what kind of a union would we say it is? What would be the adjective there? Oh, it's a personal union. The it's personal, like personal union. It's a union and the person. So we can't say, well, when Christ dwells in us, we somehow participate in the divinity in the same way that the human nature of Christ participates in the divinity. Correct. Let me ask you: Is that always going to be true of us in the resurrection? Will we participate in the life of the Trinity, but in particular the life that comes through the body of Christ? in a way greater than we do today. I think our perception of it will be greater, but honestly, I don't think the actual what's actually being given to you will be any different. The problem is we got blinders on right now. We can't see what he's actually really giving to us. We believe it. We know it's what he says. We, we trust what he says, but it's not something that we experience in our own person in the same way. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's part six of our series on the Catalog of Testimonies in the Lutheran Confessions. He is host of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and we'll get a little more from Justin after this. need a rest from the world's headlong rush to Christmas? Someplace where you and your family can slow down and prepare for Christ's birth at the church's rather than the world's pace? A midweek evening Advent service is the perfect time for your first visit to a Christ-centered, cross-focused Lutheran church. Learn more on the Find a Church page at issuesetc.org or send an email to talkback at issuesetc.org. What is eternal life? How do you understand it? How do you imagine it? We're full of all sorts of ideas of what eternal life might be like. And yet, the scriptures are clear. Eternal life centers on Christ and him crucified for the sins of the world. The November issue of the Lutheran Witness explains some of these misconceptions about eternal life and what the scriptures say. So to learn more, pick up your copy of the November issue of the Lutheran Witness. Visit witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, teaching you to interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective spiritual, and religious. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Memoria Press award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next purchase by using the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series on the Catalog of Testimonies and the Lutheran Confessions. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. So we heard briefly there from Justin before the break 
that when Christ indwells in us, it is not the same thing as the divine nature taking up into itself the human nature. What does this mean? A defiled body does not receive rays of divinity. Well, he's talking there about our defiled bodies. They cannot receive the divine nature in the exact same way that the human nature in Christ in the incarnation received the divine nature because we're polluted with sin already, right? And he makes it a little clearer in his his next statement. He says shortly, you know, there shortly thereafter, the Son of Righteousness is in substance present equally to all things, since he is God. However, we who are weak and our eyes are dim because of the filth of sin, we are incapable of receiving that light. His own temple, his own pure eye, is capable of receiving the splendor of all the light, since it has been formed by the Holy Spirit and is altogether separated from sin. So Christ in the incarnation was able to receive through the personal union all the the divine splendor of the divine nature in a way that we simply can't do. Or, you know, you can even say it like this, as Luther would say, if we did try to receive it that way now, it would wipe us out, right? It would just fry us, would be the end of us. Um, And so we can't receive it that way. It has to come mediated through the humanity of Christ. They go on to origin. Mm Mm-hmm. So notice, you know, we saw Justin's what, 150-ish. And so Origen, right at the beginning of the 200s, all the way up to about 250, he writes, the entire soul of Christ receives the entire word. He means the eternal son of God. It is received into his light and splendor. So the the soul of Christ attached to his body, because that's how souls come in the Bible, it receives the light and splendor of him who is light of light begotten. Similarly, book four, he says, the soul of Christ united to the word of God is made fully capable of receiving the son of God. So there's no limits on what the son of God can receive. His humanity may not in itself be capable of receiving everything, but the divinity is capable of giving itself entirely into his humanity. And then lastly, on this point from St. Augustine, in one of his letters, he writes, although God is entirely present to all creatures and dwells especially in believers, they do not entirely receive him. According to the differences in their ability to receive him, some possess and receive more of him and others less. But when it comes to Christ, our head, the apostle says, in him dwells all the fullness of the deity bodily. So, We each have something of God, if we are a believer in Christ, in us. But that which we have in us is always a bit and a fraction. He has the whole, always the whole. So this explains things like when Thomas witnesses the resurrection, at long last, he can, without any qualification, say, my Lord and my God, Mm -hmm. while encountering the flesh. The flesh of Jesus Christ. Yeah, maybe even touching that flesh as he said it, you know, my Lord and my God. And, and he meant those words exactly as they stand. The next point is rather lengthy. I'm going to have you read this because they're not really wrapping things up yet, but... Getting uh, close. They're getting close. <laughs> yeah. They're getting now to what we've intimated all along here, that this is really finally a fight about the Eucharist in a way that, that's coming at it from the side. That's how the whole thing happened in the time of the Reformation. So it's kind of beginning to swing back here. You'll hear it. It is well known and undeniable 
that the Godhead with its divine majesty is not locally circumscribed or limited by the flesh as though it were shut up in a container. Athanasius, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, and others correctly state this, and so does the Book of Concord, which expressly rejects it as an error to teach that the humanity of Christ has been locally expanded into all places, or that by the personal union, the human nature of Christ has been transformed into some infinite essence. Nevertheless, since the divine and human nature in Christ are personally and inseparably united in Christ, the Holy Scriptures and the Holy Fathers testify that wherever Christ is, he is not there with only half his person or with only a part of his person. For instance, the divinity alone, separate and bare, minus and without his assumed humanity, or that he is somehow personally united to it or separated from it outside the personal union with the humanity. His entire person as God and man, according to the mode of the personal union and humanity, which is an inscrutable mystery, is everywhere present in a way and in a measure that is known to God. Okay, Todd, this section, I believe, comes right. Do you remember sitting in Dr. Nagel's class and hearing him make this simple little observation? He who makes the promise, keeps the promise. So he was talking there about Matthew 28. And Jesus says in Matthew 28, I will be with you always to the end of the age. He says that with a human voice speaking through human lips. And so simple faith takes Jesus at his word and says, I don't know how, but I know he's promised this. He's not just going to be with me with some piece of him, with his divinity absent his humanity. He will be with us always but not in such a way that Christ has, I mean, I don't know how, this locally expanded idea is is one that is just really weird, right? But this is what Lutherans were accused of. I remember having a conversation when I worked at the International Center of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate with a worker there who was Calvinist in background. And he says, you know, the reason I could never become a Lutheran is because I simply do not believe that 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 Christ is locally expanded throughout the universe. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. We don't believe that either. And I remember showing, his name was Bill. I showed it to him in the Book of Congress. I said, look, this is our public confession. We absolutely reject this idea that you could take the physical Jesus and somehow sort of blow him up so that all throughout the universe, wherever you go, you're encountering some part, piece of Jesus. That's not what we're saying at all. Is the problem there the tendency to think of it in terms of locality? The Lutheran position is we do not assert that because Scripture does not assert that. But he does say this is my body. Right. And therefore, there is Christ in his totality for me. Right. That's getting more to the very last thesis that they're laying out, but that that is absolutely right on here. And so, but look, this is the passage they line up from Ephesians 4. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. Why? Why did he do it? They have to deal with these words. That he, the one who descended, and the one who then ascended, that he might fill all things. So what's the mode of this filling? Let's listen to some of the fathers on this. The first one is Ecumenius, a 6th century father, and he was like a famous commentator, especially on St. Paul. So this is right up his alley. He comments, 
long ago, he filled all things with his bare divinity. In order to fill all things with his flesh, he became incarnate, both descending and ascending. So, I mean, clearly reflecting on this passage from Ephesians and a clear statement that in a way that we don't understand, that's not local expansion, Christ actually fills all things with his flesh. Theophylact, he's that Bulgarian archbishop, the latest of these writers that they cite. He died in 1108. Theophylact says, he fills all things with his dominion and working in the flesh, since even before he had filled all things with his divinity. These things oppose Paul of Samoseta and Nestorius. He's very cognizant of the fact that if you teach this, you are cutting off the way from either of those ancient heresies, but especially think about Nestorius, who wanted to separate in Christ that which was appropriate to the divinity from that which is appropriate to the humanity, and really did not allow for a communion between the two natures, which is caused by the personal union. Pope St. Leo the Great, in his 10th letter, he writes, The church Catholic lives and advances in this faith, that in Christ Jesus, we do not believe in the humanity without the true divinity, nor in the divinity without the true humanity. In other words, what God hath joined together, let not man separate, right? And he writes similarly in his little book on the Passion. The Catholic faith teaches and requires that we know that in our Redeemer, two natures have united and that their unique properties remain. A union of both substances has taken place since the time that the Word became flesh in the womb of the Blessed Virgin. Therefore, we are not to think of God without thinking that he is man, nor are we to think of the man without thinking that he is God. Leo had a way of just being utterly clear and succinct, and that's it right there. This is why when Luther you know, they were urging Luther, lift up your eyes to the heavenly Jesus, you know. I mean, think about the divine nature at the right hand of the Father. And his response was, you know, hey, I don't have any God except the one in the arms of the Virgin and on the arms of the cross. That's the one I have. That's the God I'm sticking with. There's one more point here before we take our break. I'll read it to you. Each nature by distinct operations declares its genuineness but neither separates itself from connection with the other. This is still Leo, by the way. Here, nothing belonging to the one is lacking to the other, but God assumed the entire man and so united himself to man and man to himself that each nature is in the other, neither passed into the other with the loss of its own attributes. I love that. That really is a beautiful statement as well. The two natures each retain their own properties without being absorbed or assimilated into the other, without injury to each other. The human nature is exalted, and the divine nature, of course, cannot be exalted anymore, but it receives the human nature as its own. It is part six of our series on the Catalog of Testimonies and the Lutheran Confessions. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest He's assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the books, Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands, and he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. 
Pastor Whedon is leading a study this week on the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the temptation of Jesus, Jesus beginning his ministry, Jesus rejected at Nazareth in Luke chapters 3 and 4. You can listen at your convenience at thewordendures.org or on your favorite podcast provider. The Word of the Lord Endures Forever with Pastor Will Whedon. When we come back, we turn to the final point in the catalog of testimonies. Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the Support Donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. Join Lutherans for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 19th through Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Go to lutheransforlife.org to learn more about LFL's Conference for Adults, LFL at the March, and the Y for Life Youth Conference in Washington, D.C. The registration deadline is December 15th. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org. At Concordia Evangelical Lutheran Church of Wilmington, Delaware, our mission is to serve our community by sharing Christian hope. We've been doing this since 1938 and joyfully continue to do so in the 21st century. If you're ever in the city that DuPont Chemical Corporation calls home or is known by some as the credit card capital of the world, we hope you visit to receive Jesus through his word and sacrament. Otherwise, check us out on the web at ConcordiaWilmington.com. Putting Christ back into Christian radio, you're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Calvary Lutheran, Indianapolis, Indiana. Faith Lutheran, Groton, Connecticut. Good Shepherd Lutheran, Boise, Idaho. Emmanuel Lutheran, Sheridan, Wyoming. Memorial Lutheran, Houston, Texas. Redeemer Lutheran, Benbrook, Texas. St. John Lutheran, Champaign, Illinois. St. Paul Lutheran, Chatfield, Minnesota. Trinity Lutheran, Holloway, Minnesota. And Zion Lutheran, Imperial, Nebraska. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal.
to Issues Etc. We are concluding our series on the Catalog of Testimonies in the Lutheran Confessions with Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. So here is the tenth and final point in the Catalog of Testimonies. Since the article of Christology is especially intended to direct us to where we should seek and apprehend the entire person of the Mediator, God and man, the Book of Concord, as also all other Holy Fathers, directs us not to wood or stone or anything else, but to that to which Christ has pointed and directed us in his word. Now, Will, you said before that this is all coming down to Christ's presence in the Eucharist. Yeah. So, I mean, picture the the idea, it's said in the background here, the idea that Christ can actually give his body and blood in the Eucharist because he is present everywhere with some sort of a local extension. You're just not even sure what to do with that. Against that, that's why the Lutherans argued, we're not talking about a Copernicus eating. He's not breaking in. You know, Todd doesn't get a finger and I get a toe. Uh, the whole Christ is given and received by each communicant in each place. The whole Christ. And when we say he's everywhere present and that he fills the universe, we mean in that kind of a way that's beyond any of our ability to explain or understand. We're going to see that as very clear as we work through the passages that were adduced for this. And significantly, they only bother to give three because I think these three are absolute clenchers for them of the entire argument. But make no mistake, this is what the entire catalog of testimonies was really about. It was about how could Christ truly be present in the Eucharist if he is at the right hand of the Father? Where do they go first? Cyril of Alexandria, his commentary on St. John. He writes, Christ's garments were divided into four parts, but his mantle alone remained undivided. This is a sign of a mystery. The four corners of the earth have been brought to salvation. They share the garment of the word, that is, his flesh, among themselves in such a way that it is not divided. For the only begotten, passing into each, so to be shared by each, sanctifies their soul and body by his flesh. He is all in all, indivisibly, and entirely. Because he is one, he is everywhere, but in no way divided. You see how they're pushing up against the mystery of the Eucharist right there? When you partake of the Eucharist at your congregation, Milstadt, uh, and I partake up in Hamel, and it may be the exact same time, maybe different times, whatever, what each of us receives is the whole Christ, his body, his blood, his flesh, his divinity, all of him given to us as the pledge of our own salvation and as the gift of communion with him. They were concerned about division, but we can also warn against multiplication. There are not many bodies. There is right. one body. Right, right. It's not like we're saying, well, then you you guys are teaching Christ has a, you know, a multiplicity of bodies. No, it is the same one body which Christ distributes as he wills 
I think, remember how in the formula of Concord, they, they punted to Luther on this, where Luther talked about he distributed according to the, to the mode of, his, of the divine presence, <laughs> you know, which is something beyond our ability to actually calculate or understand. But he certainly gives himself wholly and entirely to those who receive in the Eucharist. And the same as the person next to you, the same in another city, the same throughout the entire world and across all of the centuries since it has happened, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. I mean, I wonder if they really grasped at that point how profoundly it would be fulfilled in the Holy Eucharist. They next go to Theophylact, and he is commenting here on John 19. Right. He writes, The holy body of Christ is indivisible even when it is divided and distributed to the four corners of the earth. It is distributed among them individually and sanctifies the soul of each one with the body. The only begotten is by his own flesh in all, entirely and indivisibly, because he is everywhere. He has in no way been divided, even as Paul exclaims. So you have to remember that when they speak about being divided here, picture the the one loaf, right? And picture it being divvied up, right? Somebody gets part of it, somebody gets another part. The point is, no matter who gets from the one loaf, from the one loaf, each receives the whole Christ. That's what Theophylact is confessing. He, of course, was in the Eastern tradition, and in that tradition, they continue to use leavened bread, right? So they, they literally have a big part of their liturgy is actually how you cut up, as they put it, the lamb to distribute during the, the divine service for God's people. But no matter which piece of the lamb you got, you were getting the whole. The whole is contained within each part. In our context with our individual wafers, same point. It's not like I'm getting part of him and you're getting another part. Each of us receives the whole Christ. And finally, they go to Chrysostom so that he could deal with the multiplication problem. Yeah. And his solution, again, is, well, I don't think it's an accident. They give pride of place here, the, the, the last word in the entire catalog of testimonies to Chrysostom on this point. So he writes, and this, by the way, is his chapter from Hebrews. That was a commentary that he did that, that Luther, when Luther preached on Hebrews, he paid real careful attention and cribbed a lot of his notes directly from Chrysostom. So he writes, since he is offered up in many places, are there many Christs? Not at all. The one Christ is everywhere, being completely here and completely there. One body. For as he who is offered in many places is one body and not many bodies, so is he also one sacrifice. He is that high priest of ours who has offered, notice the past tense there, offered the sacrifice that cleanses us. Now also we offer that which having been offered then was not consumed. Then this is done in remembrance of that which was done then. This do, says he, in remembrance of me. For we do not make another 
sacrifice as the high priest, but always the same. We rather bring about a remembrance of the sacrifice. And then there's a beautiful little note here that Chemnitz appended. Note, this quote is against the propitiatory sacrifice of the papist mass. You know, the idea that in the Eucharist, they're offering up some other sacrifice besides that one sacrifice, which Christ alone offered on the cross, and which we now offer to people to be able to receive the benefits of what he won by his cross. It's the conclusion of our series on the Catalog of Testimonies in the Lutheran Confessions. We will take up the conclusion of the Catalog with Pastor Will Whedon next. Ten questions to ask every time you read the Bible is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. This new resource will help you navigate God's Word with clarity and confidence. Ten questions to ask every time you read the Bible is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number 1-800-325-3040 or browse before you buy at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month. Ten questions to ask every time you read the Bible. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's life ministry is thousands of people sharing Christ's love and mercy and giving witness to our Lord's creation of life, His design for marriage and the family, and the God-given value of all human life from conception to natural death. Working with many partners, LCMS Life Ministries sponsors human care efforts that meet the needs of body and soul and provides resources and educational events for all ages. To learn more, email lifeministry at lcms.org and visit lcms.org life. Expert guests, expansive topics, extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, president of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the Master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth, Freedom, Vocation. Concordia University, Chicago. cuchicago.edu A short excerpt from our Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. Ten questions to ask every time you read the Bible. If we ask, who are you, Lord? Again, we may answer that Jesus is freedom, freedom from the burden of the law's condemnation and freedom to serve our neighbors. Find out more about 10 questions to ask every time you read the Bible at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House and order at 1-800-325-3040. 1-800-325-3040. Ask for the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November.
Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. We're concluding our series on the catalog of testimonies in the Lutheran Confessions. So how do the authors of this document, how do they conclude the document itself? Well, I mean, it is the conclusion. So I mean, for our patient listeners who have been suffering along and maybe yawning a bit as we did this whole series, uh, Chemnitz is very dense and following his thought. He, he's got, he had more brain cells than any human being had a right to have, right? So he was able to be very particular and dense in what he taught. I mean, he was very precise. So if you've been feeling like this is never going to come to an end, rejoice. It's coming to an end right now. Here's how he wraps it up, and it is a significant wrap-up. Listen to this. Christian reader, so he's addressing you. These testimonies of the ancient teachers of the church have been provided here not to suggest that our Christian faith is founded on the authority of men. Now, wait a minute. People could really get that impression, right? How much of this catalog of testimonies has been devoted to the fathers versus how much to the scriptures? The scripture passages in every case were small, concise. They stated the matter. In Chemnitz's considered view, they also settled the matter. You didn't need anything more than what the scripture said. But remember, the opponents of the Lutherans had accused them of interpreting those scripture passages in a novel way, and they accused them of inventing weird new ways of speaking about Christ. And so Chemnitz was at pains to demonstrate that is absolutely and categorically false. Let me show you. So he goes on here. The true saving faith is not founded on any church teacher, old or new. That means not Martin Luther either, but only and alone on God's word as contained in the scriptures of the holy prophets and apostles, an unquestionable witness of divine truth. So he's really clear the teaching itself has its foundation entirely, completely in the word of God. What cannot be proved from there cannot be proved at all. And no opinion of a human author is able to actually add something to what the scriptures themselves teach. He goes on. With his special and uncanny crafts, Satan has caused fanatics to lead men from the holy scriptures, in a parenthetical thought, which, thank God, even a common layperson can now read with benefit, in other words, because Luther has translated them so memorably into the vernacular for the German people, to the writings of the ancient church, which are like a broad ocean. Okay, I've always kind of been a big lover of patristics. So a lot of people, when they think patristics, they're thinking of what? The volumes of Schaff? A lot of the people, pastors, have those on their shelves, right? Nah, not so much. You need to go down to the library in the seminary and look through the church father's aisle and especially look at the collection in Minya, right? I think I'm saying that right. M-I-G-N-E. I don't know how to speak French. I think they say Minya. He put it together, all the collected fathers. I mean, volume after volume after volume after volume. Latin and Greek. I'm not sure if he even included any of the Eastern Syrian and uh Coptic stuff that that's also come down, but that's you, you get a real sense there. It really is a wide ocean. Compare that 
to a Bible that you hold in your hand, right? Kivnis goes on, a person who has not read the fathers carefully cannot know precisely whether or not these new teachers are quoting their words correctly, and thus they leave a person in grievous doubt. Well, one of the things Martin Kimnitz did when he was a librarian, at one point he was not yet called to the ministry, he actually spent the entire time he was at that library reading and cataloging what the fathers said about this, that, and the other. If you've ever been amazed at how he knows so much from the fathers, he actually spent a boatload of his time trying to learn what they had to say. And he read them in the original as he had them at the time. He goes on, this is why we have been compelled to declare with this catalog and to show everyone that this new false doctrine has as little foundation in the ancient pure teachers of the church as in the Holy Scriptures. It is, in fact, diametrically opposed to it. They quote the church fathers in such a way as to give them a false meaning contrary to the Father's will. They do this just as they wantonly pervert the simple, plain, and clear words of Christ's testament and the pure testimonies of the Holy Scriptures. This is what the whole thing is a fight about, right? Can you take Jesus at his word when he hands you the bread and says, this is my body, which is given for you? Can you take him at his word when he hands you the chalice and promises, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sin. Do you have to insert into the words of Christ something like, is a symbol of? Do you have to do that? Or are you supposed to take the words as they read? So they want to make sure that everybody knows the early fathers all taught that the body and blood of Christ are in the Eucharist and are received in such a way that their life-giving power is fully operative through the body and blood, human nature, through that, the divine power is operative so that the body of Christ can give life. That's really at the heart of the whole dispute. I remember, and you remember it as well, I'm sure, in our days at the seminary, we were introduced to this complex of theological ideas called the communication of attributes. Mm -hmm. And we were kind of forced to memorize the Latin of these things and then be able to define them. And it just never would stick for me. It has struck me in doing this series with you. And it all has to do with the two natures in Christ and how they, how the attributes are communicated from one to another. That's a very helpful way of thinking about it. It is seminary level stuff, but this series dealing with these issues here has done more to reprise my knowledge of how to rightly think about Christ in his two natures, one person, than any textbook on the communication of attributes possibly could. It's a primer on how to think of Christ. It is. I mean, truly, this particular document sits one halfway between what's included in the Formula of Concord in Article 8 uh, on the person of Christ and Chemnitz's magisterial two natures in Christ. That book is so hard and so dense. I mean, 
I always wanted to read. I'm like, I'm going to read. I, I, I never finished the whole book till I left my position at Senate. I spent la- that fall uh, when I was starting up the podcast here. I, I read two pages a day until I was done with the book. It took a long time, but it was that much slogging because he's, you know, it's interspersed with Greek and Latin all over the place. It's a fascinating thing, but it's the full exposition of what we have here. Should we get this last sentence in there? Yes, very quickly. Yeah. Because of this, the book of Concord directs everyone to the Holy Scriptures and the simple catechism. The person who clings to this basic form with true simple faith provides what is best for his soul and conscience since it is built on a firm and immovable rock. In other words, they don't want you to get distracted into the fathers. With only a minute here, Will, how does the catalog of testimonies supplement the amazing teachings of the Lutheran Confession? Well, they give you the rest of the data, which Chemnitz and Andrea and the others who worked on the Formula of Concord just thought was they didn't have space to stick all this data in there to make their point. But they knew that the accusations that came about, particularly after the Formula of Concord had been published, and people started saying, these Lutherans are teaching something crazy and new and different. They're like, no, we are not, and we can show you. And that's what that document does. And that's why so many printers actually inserted it at the end of the Book of Concord as a very useful help. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois, formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of the books Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. And he hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Will, thank you very much for the series. Thank you, Todd. When we come back, Pastor Sean Denzer joins us. We're going to be looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, beginning a reprise of that classic series with him looking forward to Advent 1 and the propers for that Sunday. We have great comfort in the biblical teaching of Christ's incarnation, how the eternal Son of God took to himself a perfect human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary so that he might sacrifice himself for us at the cross and communicate the benefits of that sacrifice to us in his body and blood at the Lord's table. I'm Todd Wilkin. Issues Etc. continues after the break. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. You can help save lives in Southern Illinois by participating in 40 Days for Life, September 28th through November 6th. Vigils will be held outside abortion facilities at Granite City, Carbondale, and Fairview Heights, Illinois. For information on Granite City, visit 40daysgc.com. To learn more about Carbondale and Fairview Heights, go to coalitionforlife.com. You can protect mothers and children by joining the worldwide effort of 40 Days for Life, September 28th through November 6th. 